up. <laughs> While he's getting set up, I'm also inviting a friend from Queensland who's a really good friend of Putty, and Dan's going to come. Dan Weeks, come on down. Because we're a family of churches and we have the opportunity to have part of the family with us, I've just asked Dan to come and pray for you, Putty. Oh, thank you. Isn't that nice? That's quite nice. He said yes. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> so glad you're here. And Dan, over to you. Thank you, Di. <laughs> Putty, can we pray for you and bless you? I would love that. Great. Please. Would, would you extend you your hands? <laughs> Father, we thank you for the heart and the character of Putty. And we pray now, would you release a fresh wave of your spirit upon him as he shares your heart and your character with us this morning? We just say more, Lord. Would you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive? And Lord, would you go beyond our plans this morning and into yours? We just say yes, Lord. More, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 You know, I love, I love you guys, and I, I love many things about Vineyard Australia. And one of them I deeply love is you guys' just like collective hunger from the Holy Spirit. So you know, we're up here praying, and you know, I'm on the other side of it, right? So I'm receiving it every every single time. He says, "More, Lord." I hear the whole room go, "Hmm." <laughs> So, so good. good. I love so you guys. Good. That's why we're family right there. <laughs> well, it has been a real joy, a real pleasure to be here these last number of days. If uh, this is your first connection um, with me, uh, you can probably already tell I'm from a little bit of a different part of the world. Um, but Australia has just a precious place in my heart. This is my third time here over the last five years. I pray I'm coming back quite frequently. As time goes, we'll see. Um, but it has just been an honor and it has been a pleasure. And this morning, I want to talk <clears throat> a little bit about um, the very unique season that all of us have been living through individually, that we've been living through in the community of our churches, that we've been living through as a collective community of churches in the Vineyard family. Uh, it's been weird, right? I gotta admit, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of crazy in the world, but global pandemic and all those layers didn't, didn't see any of that coming. And, you know, in my life, and it seems like in the life of a lot of the people that I've interacted with, this has been um, a season of a lot of churn, a lot of change, and a lot of letting go of things without our hands being refilled yet. And when I look at the scriptures, um, we see that this is something that the Lord does sometimes. I've found myself actually quite frequently um, looking at the Israelites and their journey between Egypt and the Promised Land. Because in the middle of there, they spend about 40 years wandering through a wilderness. And those 40 years wandering through the wilderness are a really interesting and a pivotal time. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've spent a few years wandering through a wilderness at this point. And so, and so I've been, I've been there, there in the scriptures like, Lord, teach me a thing or two in this. This isn't the first time you've led people through the wilderness, like you're leading me through a wilderness, like how does that work and what is that like? And the wilderness is hard. It's really uncomfortable. There's a reason people don't live there. Right? There's a reason, like it's the place where nobody is, because it's not hospitable. It's not comfortable. It doesn't actually have what we fundamentally need, interestingly. And yet, it's the place that sometimes the Lord calls his people. It's the place he called the Israelites out of when he came from Egypt. It's the place he calls Jesus into after his baptism. It's the place he calls Elijah to go meet with him. There's times, there's seasons where the Lord calls us to the wilderness. And for me, when the Lord calls me to the wilderness, or at least in this last iteration of it, it caught me by surprise. 
And, you know, I, I have a hunch it probably caught the Israelites by surprise, too. Because Moses doesn't show up and say, hey, good news, we're leaving Egypt to go to the wilderness. He said, good news, there's a promised land over there. Let's go to the promised land. And so, you know, the Lord doesn't dangle the wilderness in front of us. He dangles the promised land in front of us. And so we kind of have this expectation that I'm going to step out of Egypt. I'm going to cross the Red Sea right into the promised land. And then we find out, like, oh, wait a minute. There was a thing in the middle I didn't see coming. But that wilderness season is really important because it's only sort of the first step where the Lord brings us out of our Egypt, our last season, so to speak. That's actually the easy part. It takes God like all of, I don't know how long the 10 plagues and all that goes down. I assume that was like a month or two, you know? Uh, pretty dramatic little season of time. Let's say it's two months. Takes the Lord all of two months to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It takes the Lord 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And it's not until Egypt is out of the Israelites that that space can be filled with the promises that he wants to bring us into, into the promised land. And so usually what the Lord does when he's bringing us into something new is he brings us into a place that deconstructs the last season before he reconstructs the next season. And when he does that, what happens is the Lord kind of narrows our focus and brings like a lot of things that we would normally juggle in life. He tightens the aperture as it is and dials us in directly and almost exclusively only on him. Now, the Israelites, before they're in the wilderness, like, we have every indication that this is, this is a people group that, yes, they're being oppressed by the Egyptian government, but they're also a people group that's really thriving. The reason that they're being oppressed is because, like, they're growing and they're bountiful and they're, they have, you know, property and they probably have livestock. And then they actually get loaded up with a bunch of resources from the Egyptians on their way out. Like, this is a group of people who are used to an established life. And then what happens is God guides them into a wilderness where everything they've relied on in the last season is irrelevant in the current one. Oh, you're a great farmer? That doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, you have this fantastic trade that you know how to do? Irrelevant. And it, it goes more than just our skill sets are irrelevant. Actually, fundamentally, what God does is he puts us in a place where we don't have a map and won't be able to get one. When you're in the wilderness, you're in a place that you've never been before. So you can't do what you do when you're in a familiar place. You're like, oh, I kind of know the terrain. Like, I know over there would be a good place to grow that. And I know kind of around that bend there's a river and I can get some water there if I need to. And we, like, construct these maps of our lives where we, like, understand how to do things and how to get things. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's all good. But none of that works in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, you're somewhere you haven't been before. <laughs> And in fact, it's not even safe to go out and explore it. Oh, I'm going to go around the bend and see what's over there and get eaten. Right? So what happens in the wilderness is the Lord narrows our focus and tightens us to the one thing that he asks of us in that season. And that one thing is to be incredibly dialed in on his presence. God does not give the Israelites the map through the wilderness. God says, you're going to stay real close to me. And when I move, you're going to move. And when I don't move, you're going to hang out. And that's the plan for the next 40 years. That doesn't feel like much of a plan to me, does it? Like, that feels like it's almost the opposite of responsible. 
right? It's the kind of thing where we go like, you shouldn't do that with your life. Like, that's not smart. But that's exactly what the Lord asked them to do. And in fact, it's not only that, the Lord sets it up where if they deviate from that, it's actually quite dangerous to do so. I, um, I just moved, I relocated not that long ago, a few months ago, um, across the country. I, used to, I grew up in the Chicago area, and so if you're familiar where that is, that's kind of in the Midwest uh, and um, in the United States. It's an agriculture area, lots of growth, like ideal growing climate, some of the best soil in the world there to grow on, actually. And I relocated from there to Phoenix, Arizona, which is a little bit different in terms of climate. Um, and it's located smack in the middle of probably the most inhospitable desert in the United States. And it turns out that, like, latitude-wise, if you trace, like, around the globe, it's almost the exact same latitude as Israel. So it's interesting. I'm learning a lot in that. I'm like, oh, I'm in a desert that's at the same latitude as Israel. Like, I'll take a few notes here, right? And one of the things I've learned about that is that deserts are very interesting places. And specifically, like, we had, we had, can I just tell you something stupid I did? This is, this is such an American thing to do, but, like, I just could not do it. So there was a week where they were advertising that Phoenix was the hottest place on the planet. I don't know if it's true, but the news was saying it was true, right? It was quite hot. I mean, we're approaching, like, 50 degrees Celsius hot. It was hot. And I decided on that day, I was like... I have, to, I have to fulfill my stupid Americanness, And so I picked the hottest part of the hottest day of that week, and I went for like a three-mile hike. It was awesome. But deserts are not places that you want to do things like that. Like, that's a stupid thing to do, right? I wouldn't suggest doing that. I survived. The Lord was with me. Thank you, Lord. But in general, when your temperature's approaching 50 degrees, the best thing you can do is not be outside, right? And on the flip side, right, if you've been in a desert, it's almost as hot as the day can be, the night can be equally dangerous and cold, right? The night can just drop, temperature drop off the cliff and you can be, you can be near freezing. And so deserts and wildernesses have a very strange temperature cycle, right? It can, it can kill you either part of the day. <laughs> right? It's just, you've got about 15 minutes where it's all right. <laughs> and then it can kill you on either part of the day. So think about it. Think about this. Think about the practical realities of this situation. Scholars estimate that when the Israelites left Egypt, there was on the order of a million of them. And by the time they get to the promised land, there's on the order of five million of them. So, so just, let's just, just, you know, because they were there for 40 years. Let's split the difference. Let's say you're, you're working with 3 million people. And these 3 million people have a typical age spread. So in the 3 million people, there's like hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands of kids. There's hundreds of thousands of elderly people. And you're trying to navigate this group of people through the kind of climate that will kill you two times a day. You know what's very important? What would be the best possible scenario in that kind of situation? You'd really love, in the middle of the night, to have a giant pillar of fire that could keep everybody warm. No, actually, we, we kind of missed this layer. During the day, you'd love to have a giant cloud cover that could take off the edge of the heat and keep people safe. And what God does is he says, guys, you're gonna hang with me, stay tight with me. I'll be the fire you need at night, I'll be the cloud you need during the day. And if you stay with me, this inhospitable wilderness will actually be hospitable. But if you move off of my presence, or if my presence starts moving and you don't, <laughs> what you'll find is that this really is a dangerous environment without me. So in the wilderness, interestingly, it's God's presence that renders the wilderness livable. 
And that's what God does with us in this season. He tightens the aperture on us. And he's like, look, I'm not anti you having livestock. I'm not anti you knowing how to farm. I'm not anti all of those things. But in the next season, you need to be a different version of you. This is the bit I miss. I have this, this weird tendency. I forget that I'm not done. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like God puts like a dream ahead of me or, or something, and I'm like, oh, awesome, I can do that. And I just expect that this version of me can do that. But that's not usually what God's doing. God's like, yeah, to be able to do that, there's actually going to be a different version of you that can do that. Like a version of you that's grown up in Jesus a little bit more. A version of you that's conformed to me a little bit more than you are right now. And so, usually the journey actually makes us the person we need to be to do the thing he's calling us to do. There's like a formation in the process that God's very committed to and he loves, and I completely forget about. So I get confused when that's what God starts doing, right? I'm like, oh, wait a minute, God. I thought I was like just like Jesus already. He's like, no, turns out you're not. Turns out we've got a long way to go. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull you real close to me. And we're going to make me the only thing you see and the only thing you follow. And then I put you in the place where everything else feels like it gets stripped away. Maybe even good things. Maybe even things that were gifts from me. But they're still stripped away. I'm going to put you in a place that feels unsafe. But you'll see that dialed into my presence, the unsafe place is safe. And we're going to walk there for a little while until something new gets formed in you. I don't know about you, but this rings a lot of bells for the last few years for me. This is how it works. And what's interesting is in this whole process, there's, there's one uh, story in the middle of here that, that I particularly love. There's a number of stories in this, in this whole portion of the scriptures that I think are beautiful, but there's one story that I particularly love that I want to spend a bit of time sinking our teeth into today. It's one you've probably heard before, but we're going to really press our way into the scriptures and see if the Lord has a little something extra for us in terms of how it is that he wants to provide for us, I suppose, in the wilderness. Because it does work very differently here. So if you have um, a copy of the scriptures, maybe crack it open to Exodus 16. If you don't, um, you, can, you can do that on, on a phone if you like. I'm not organized enough that we have slides. That's on me. I apologize. Uh, you can perhaps just trust that I'm not reading and making it up. Um, but uh, if you want to flip there, we'll, we'll go to Exodus 16. And in Exodus 16, what's happened is the, the Israelites have just crossed the Red Sea. And they're just beginning the wilderness journey. This is like about the very first thing that happens. It's actually the second thing that happens. The first thing that happens is they cross the Red Sea and they have a big party. God saved us. Thank you so much. You're amazing. Okay. And then 15 minutes after that party, reality sets in. And they're like, wait a minute, there's a million of us out here in the desert. Like, how are we going to not die? And so this is the, about the first thing that happens in that context. And they do what at least I would do, and I would suggest most of us would do. They start getting hungry. And they're like, uh, we need some food. So, in Exodus 16, verse 2, here's what happens. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. 
And the people shall go out and gather a, day portion, a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they'll walk in my law or not. So the Israelites get a little bit hangry, <laughs> right? They get a little dramatic, and I get dramatic when I'm hangry, so I get it, right? The Israelites are like, oh my gosh, we're in the desert. There's no food out here. We're just going to die. Like all of that awesome stuff we just experienced was totally worthless. We're about to die. So they're like, if we're going to die, I mean, I'd rather die with a good, with a good meal in my stomach. Like, why do we even leave? What's the point? You know? And I got to be honest, I get it. <laughs> if I'm going to die, I want to die with some deep dish pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Give me some steak, okay? Like, what, what gives? So they start complaining, and they start grumbling, and it's easy for us to be a little hard on them, right? But if we're honest, I wouldn't fare any better in that situation. I'd probably be worse. I'd be leading the charge to head back to Egypt. And so they say, this is ridiculous. God just brought us out here to die. Like, what gives? And look at this. This is interesting. The Lord replies, hey, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And tell the people to go out and gather a day's portion every day. And in this, you're going to learn some things about following me, basically. This is really fascinating. Before we just move on, I want, I want to just like sit with the oddness of this verse. Apparently, there's bread in heaven? Of all the things that I was tracking with that existed in heaven, I, I wouldn't have put bread terribly high on the list. The Lord says, I want to give you bread not from earth, but from heaven itself. That's really interesting. He says this bread is going to work in a certain way. You're going to get the bread, but you're only going to get one day's worth of the bread at a time. Because it turns out that the bread that comes from heaven acts just a little bit differently than the bread that comes from earth. So a little bit later, there's a few things that happen in between, but we come to verse 16, and what happens is they wake up one morning, and there's all this stuff all over the ground. They've never seen it before. So they look at it, and they say, they, they, what is that? And it turns out that what is that in Hebrew is manna. And so, <laughs> so, that's what's going on there. And so, and so they're, they're confused. They don't even know what they're looking at. They're like, that's some weird version of snow. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And, and, and Moses says to them in verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. The Lord said he was going to give you bread from heaven. This is that. So go pick it up. <laughs> You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. So Moses says, hey, take this much of it. And I have a container that's kind of roughly an omer. Jess, would you hand me that? An omer, it's about two liters, right? And I love visuals because I'm a visual dude, right? So it's about this much, give or take, okay? So imagine that you wake up tomorrow morning. You've been, you've been looking for bread from heaven. The Lord says, I'm gonna feed you, right? You found yourself out in the outback, you're gonna die. The Lord says, I have bread from heaven for you. And you wake up the next morning and there's Tim Tams all over the ground. Because let's be honest, if we're talking about bread from heaven, okay? <laughs> there's Tim Tams, the dark chocolate ones. There's dark chocolate Tim Tams, and maybe some of the mint ones there too, okay? And they're scattered all over the ground, and the Lord says, grab, grab an omer and go collect your Tim Tams. And so every morning, you know, they go out and they, they, pack, they pack the thing full of Tim Tams, right? But look at this, this is so fascinating. He says this, and, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. 
So they go out there, and some people are like, I don't know if I need to eat that much. I mean, really, a diet entirely of carbs? Like, that's probably not a good idea. And so they get, they get half, half the amount, right? And then, and then the other people, you know, like the, the teenagers, they're like, Tim Tams, all right, here we go, you know? And they get like three times as much. But it says, when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So you pick up a small pile and you dump it into the container and the container comes right to the full mark. And you pick up a really big pile and you dump it into the container and half of it disappears and it comes right to the full mark. That's what it's saying. This is the, the Tim Tams from heaven are quite strange. And it turns out this is the only the beginning because they do all kinds of other things. They, they have a very short shelf life. They rot every, after every day except on Saturdays when they last 48 hours instead of 24. Right? Like, these are very, very strange things. And the point here, right, is that the bread from heaven, the provision from heaven works a little bit differently than the provision from earth. The provision from heaven <clears throat> shows up on an as-needed basis. It's print-on-demand. You don't get a stockpile. You get a daily portion. And the bread that comes from heaven might look big or look small. You might get what you feel like is not nearly enough. Or you might feel like you have overflowing abundance. Whatever provision flows into your life, what you'll find is that it exactly meets the mark of what you need for the day, regardless of how big or small it comes in. So they start this pattern. They start gathering it and collecting it and, 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 and eating it and, and, and this whole thing and, and all of this. And then something interesting happens a bit later in the chapter. And I want to dive into this, because this is a very fascinating thing that's happening here. My, my, for me, at least, it kind of brings the story to life in a new way. Hey, bud. So, in Exodus, uh, sorry, in verse 33, still in Exodus 16, Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. So grab a daily portion of the manna and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. That testimony means he put it, and it says a little bit later in more detail, he puts it in the Ark of the Covenant that's sitting in the tabernacle. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of a weird thing to do. What exactly is going on there? What's going on there, turns out, is deeply meaningful. But it's the kind of thing that I kind of just like slip past because I don't 100% track with what's going on with the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all those things seem very weird and my touch point is like Indiana Jones or something, you know? <laughs> but there's a, there's, there's a really interesting thing happening here. And so let's, let's press into this a little bit. So I have two hula hoops. Could, could, can I get those real quick here? Again, yeah, object visual guy, guy, all right? Thank, Thank you very much, Jess. Appreciate that. Um, let's see, I need to invite two people up. Kath, can I get you? Can, I knew it, you knew it, you knew it. Okay, you get the yellow hoop, which... You don't have to hula hoop. No, 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 we're not going there. <laughs> that would be bold ask. Come on up and hula hoop in front of everybody. No, we don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. Adam, can I snag you, mate? <laughs> okay. So what I have here, perfect. <laughs> You're feeling vulnerable right now. This is okay. This is okay. We're not going to do anything embarrassing. Okay? And you won't be up here for an hour. It'll be okay. <laughs> Okay, so what, what I have here, what I have here, the Bible talks about, the Bible contemplates, in the Old Testament and in the New, the scriptures contemplate two different sort of domains of reality. 
One of them is called Earth. That's the one that we're quite familiar with. And we're going to say that this red hula hoop is Earth. Okay? And so it's even the right shape, roughly. And so that's great. So Adam, Adam has the Earth here. Okay? The other place that the scriptures talk about is it talks about this place that's called heaven. And there's this idea, I know, look at this, Kath, you got it, perfect, you're tracking, right? The scriptures talk about heaven, and there's this idea that heaven is where God lives. And there's all kinds of interesting things happening in heaven, and what we're talking about in this story is bread that comes from heaven, isn't it? Now, when I think about these two places, my default thinking of how this whole thing works is I put myself, you are here. And I think of these in the kind of way where it's like, I live here until someday I'm going to die, and then I'm going to move from here to here. That's kind of like my default thinking or whatever. It turns out, and this might surprise you, that that is not what the Bible is talking about at all. And that's not the picture the Bible has. Because the picture that the Bible has is that these two things aren't totally disjoint. In fact, there's places that are earth, there's places that are heaven, and like a good Venn diagram, there's actually places that are both earth and heaven. Right? That's, that's an interesting thing, right? This is heaven but not earth. This is earth but not heaven. And this is heaven and earth at the same time. Now, part of what's happening in the, in the Exodus story and with the Israelites is Moses, God gives Moses this intricate plan to build this thing called the tabernacle. And he says, if you build it just like the way I'm going to show you, then I'm going to actually come down and live in that tabernacle. And what's happening, what's being set up by this whole thing is <clears throat> this place right here, this place we call the tabernacle on earth, and we call it God's throne room in heaven. The scriptural story is saying that. They're saying, look, most of earth doesn't overlap with heaven, and most of heaven doesn't overlap with earth. But there's one place where the two come together. And that, and that one place, place is the place where God lives in heaven and on earth. And it's over in that tent. And so that's why if you walk into that tent unprepared, some bad things might happen to you. <laughs> right? Because you have to be prepared to intersect heaven if you're from earth. Right? Now, <clears throat> what's happening here, remember, the story starts where the Israelites are like, we need food, we're going to die. And God says, I have bread from heaven that I plan to feed you with. And then this Tim Tam manna stuff fills the ground. And God says this, take a daily portion of it, fill up your Tim Tams, and put it in the place of heaven and earth. Put it in the, testimony, in the place of the testimony. Now the whole point of this zone is that from the earthly side, it has to be constructed in conformity to heaven. God doesn't say, hey, just be creative and make whatever tent you want. He says, you gotta make it exactly this way because this is the way, the place where the, the design of heaven is fulfilled on earth. So what's happening in this is it's not just like, oh, we want to put it there to remember. What's happening is this daily portion is living in the place where it's like in the throne room of God, there's a daily portion of manna. Now imagine how this would play out psychologically. Okay? Imagine that, you know, you're out, you're gathering your food, and, and you've got your little four-year-old who, who helps you do the, the task of collecting the, the, the Tim Tams every day, you know? And, and they're like, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, where do all these Tim Tams come from? Now, what I would by default tell them, because I maybe wouldn't be tracking with this, is I might say, well, God just makes it out of nothing every day. But that's not what they were thinking at all. 
Because what they were thinking is, actually over here, in this place that is heaven and earth, there's a daily portion of this stuff. And what happens is every night when we go to sleep, God takes the daily portion that lives in the overlap of heaven and earth, and he allocates a daily portion to every single one of us. So that when we wake up in the morning, we find out that the daily portion that has come from heaven has been daily multiplied into every one of our lives. Said another way, this is actually a multiplication miracle. It's a multiplication miracle. And if you think about it, the consistency of God's activity in his provision in this wilderness is unbelievably unbelievably staggering to me. One to five million people. Again, let's split the difference. Let's say that we're working with three million people. 365 days a year. (laughs) A daily portion for 40 years. Three million times 365 times 40. I crunched it on my calculator earlier. We're closing in on 44 billion. 44 billion daily portions. The Lord says, I've got you. I've got you. When I'm not in the wilderness, it's really hard for me to imagine that God would do something so generous as to give me one daily portion. Or maybe I've, I've got one or two, and I'm like, oh, he won't do it five times in a row. I'm not that special. special. What happens is the Lord never pads the bank account. He never goes, well, I'll give you the first 23 billion up front and then I'll pay out the next billion. You know, like, that's not what he does. But he is unbelievably faithful. 44 billion times in a row faithful to give you, to give me, the daily portion we need. Now what's super cool, can I have one of you just hold that there to continue? This visual is getting hard. (laughs) This is beautiful, you're doing great, that's perfect, right there, right? Let me show you one more thing that's really cool. So this verse, or this story, it's, it's not only a fun story for us that you might have heard before, and this probably isn't the first time you've engaged with this, but it's an incredibly foundational story for the Israelites themselves, right? It's like, this is, this is what God did. Like, this is who we are. It's really, really interesting. And that story lives in the Israelite consciousness. And what happens a whole lot of thousands of years later is Jesus Jesus grabs grabs this story story and and uses uses it to make make some meaning meaning connected to himself. If if you look at, for example, Exodus 16 and the story in John 6, where Jesus multiplies the food to feed the 5,000, there are like really intentional references between those two chapters that are meant to make the readers think, oh, this is connected to that manna thing. Just a couple of them real quick. I won't flip to the verses. But in Exodus 16, we read this at the beginning. God says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people should go out, gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them. In John 6, Jesus says to Philip, hey, where are we to buy bread so these people can eat? He said this to test him. Exodus 16, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. John 6, Jesus takes the loaves, when he's given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Each of them ate as much as they wanted, right? Moses says to them, let no one leave any of it left over to the morning. Don't leave it there, collect it all. Right? Right, right. Jesus Jesus tells his disciples, disciples, gather up the leftover fragments fragments, that nothing nothing may be lost. lost. 
To us, those might feel like, well, I don't know, that feels like a bit of a stretch, right? To them, to the Israelites, this is glaring in your face. We're doing the manna thing. Right? right? It's, it's not, not super, super obvious, obvious to me either, either but that's because, because I didn't grow up like rehearsing like, these stories every holiday. Right? right? <laughs> if that's if what that's you do, then these, then these little, little bits and pieces, pieces scream to you, manna, manna, manna. So Jesus, Jesus is, is, is grabbing this manna idea, idea in the whole multiplying of the food to feed the 5,000. So, so, so the, the, the Jews, they actually pick up on this. And they're like, they're like, oh, I, I get, I get that you're doing the manna thing. And so the, the Jews actually go to Jesus and, and they're trying to work it out. They're like, are you saying you're Moses here? What exactly are you doing? I don't understand the meaning that's sitting behind this. Because there's like layers that's going on here. One of the layers is just the sheer provision, like God provides. Those people were hungry, they needed to eat, and God provided and met them, right? But sitting inside of it, in another layer, there's some kind of statement that's being made about who is Jesus and how does all of this work. And so the Jews are trying to wrestle through that, and they're like, are you saying you're, you're Moses, or are you saying not? Like, what's going on here? And so they, um, in John 6, I'll read this. This is starting verse 31. They're talking with Jesus, and they're like, they're like our fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them the bread from heaven to eat. See, they're dialing in. They're like, we're trying to, we're trying to figure this out. And Jesus says, says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, now look at this, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's like, don't get this mixed up. Okay, we're not in a debate about Moses. Honestly, it was God that did it in the first place. Okay? So like, let's not get caught up on Moses. Here, right? <laughs> but the bread from heaven is he who comes down and gives life to the world. Dial in on the bread here, guys. Pay attention to the bread. Right? And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We'd like that bread. I like bread from heaven. I heard it was pretty good. It tastes like Tim Tams, they say. I would really like some of that bread, right? And Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. What's going on here? What's going on is Jesus is saying, look, guys, you, you heard a story. It was a story about there being a daily portion that lived in the place of heaven and earth. And out of that daily portion, God faithfully multiplied over 40 billion times to meet your every need. And you thought that was about bread. But what it's really about is I'm the bread. I'm the daily portion that sits in the place of heaven and earth. I'm the bread of life that came from heaven and was poured out into the world. I'm the bread that you're meant to collect every day. I'm the bread that you'll find has enough for every supply. And I'm the bread that was not only collected in the earth, but then was lifted up and placed in the throne room of the overlap of heaven and earth. That's me. That's who I am. It's what he's saying in this miracle. When we, it's beautiful, right? When we're in the wilderness, I'm in the wilderness right now. I've collected a few daily portions. I keep thinking, maybe there's the Jordan River, maybe I'm out. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not very out yet. <laughs> My guess is you may feel in some ways that you're in the wilderness. And my encouragement to you is this. God has a plan in the wilderness. And it's a, a challenging plan because it's a plan that doesn't, we don't see in advance. It's a plan we get one day at a time. 
It's a plan that some days feels like we have enough for the day, and some days it feels like we probably don't have enough for the day. But every night when you and I sleep, God takes a daily portion of Jesus himself, and he hides him in the day we have ahead. And when we wake up, the day that's been set before us isn't just a day of me. It's a day in which the very bread of life has been scattered into the day I have ahead. And that portion of Jesus lives in the day ahead and is there as my provision, but you know it's not going to keep past the day. I have an opportunity to collect something of Jesus that day that's only on the table that day. But there's never a day where it's not there. There's never a day where he hasn't been multiplied forward into my life. And there's never a day when the instruction isn't the same instruction as it was to the Israelites, go collect your daily bread. Jesus lays ahead of you in every day. And his provision is there kind of in two dimensions at the same time. The first is he is your daily provision. He is your provision. I find that if I collect Jesus, I somehow get a lot of other stuff in there too. And the other stuff feels a lot more concrete, you know? So the first thing I think when I wake up is like, oh, what am I going to do about that? How am I going to solve that problem? Where are those resources going to come from? And, you know, how am I going to resolve that issue or whatever? Like, I wake up and I'm like, I have all of these needs. But it turns out that all of those needs are somehow like in Jesus himself. And that if I'll collect a portion of Jesus for the day, I'll find that all those needs get thrown in. And so the first, the first encouragement, I suppose, that this gives us is don't miss the portion of Jesus for today. Go collect it. Go crack open those scriptures. Go set aside a time of prayer. <laughs> Go, go fast your breakfast. Go, I don't know what it is. Go spend time out in nature. Go, go share your faith. Go serve the poor. Go bless. I don't know what it is. And, and each of us have a different like growth journey in that with God. And it's, it's beautiful because there's like ways in which God uses a lot of things for a lot of us. And at the same time, there's ways where it's deeply personal and it's made just for you because God knows exactly how he made you. But whatever that is, don't miss the daily portion of Jesus for today. It's actually only on the table today. And there's no condemnation in that. Don't beat yourself up. But it's simply a statement to say it's that precious. Why would you miss a day? And so Jesus buries his provision for ourselves. I'll put that right back there when you guys grab that again. He buries himself as our provision, but he also buries himself in our day as the provision for others too. And so Jesus buries himself in our day. And, and we run into these little moments where Jesus is present in a moment. And it's like, hey, you know what you could do? You could, you could just take a minute and encourage that person. You could just take 30 seconds and, and step into a, a little bit of an awkward moment and offer to pray. You could, take, you could take just a minute and you could say, hey, you know, I know that struggle because that's been my struggle. And you know where I found the solution for that struggle? In my daily portion of Jesus. He buries himself in our days. And what's, what's on the table for this day today is only on the table for this day. And so we collect it by stepping into those moments. We collect it by, by, by meeting God's initiative. And that's what he does today. And then the next day you wake up and he's hidden himself all over again. 
My kids have these little books. I'm sure they have them here too. That we call them look and finds. Where it's like, you know, it's this really complicated picture and it's, you know, like find these 12 things, you know, among the million other things or whatever. And it's kind of like that. Like our life is a Jesus look and find. You know? Like you wake up and you look at the calendar and it looks really busy and, you know, you, all these relationships and that looks really complicated. And somehow buried in all of those details is Jesus hidden. And we get the beautiful task of stepping in and going, oh, there he is. Oh, I found him. And oh, I haven't found him in this part yet, but I'm going to keep looking. We're going to get him there. Your life is a Jesus looking find. Because Jesus has been multiplied as a daily portion of provision for you. I don't love the wilderness. I don't know that any of us do. The Israelites grumbled for like 40 years. And then they eventually got out of it, right? But what I have found is that in the wilderness, when God does dial all those other things away and bring me to basically the one central focus, who he is, there's an unbelievable sweetness in meeting him in that daily portion. There's an unbelievable sweetness in life actually kind of coming to a sort of simplicity there. Right? right? Like, like I, I like I a lot like of things. I like my life to feel full and, and all of this stuff. But, but when it's like the one thing that's actually the only thing becomes the sole part of your focus. It, it's weird. It's uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's like life clicks into focus in this beautiful and powerful way. And it's probably true that we're going to live through this wilderness season, whether we're intentional about it or not. I don't know how long it lasts, but most of us, like, we're going to survive just because, like, our heart's going to keep beating through it. <laughs> like, biologically, you're going to live through the wilderness, right? That's actually not the question on hand here. The question on hand is... <laughs> Are we going to, like, seize the wilderness? Are we going to say, this is the time of the 44 da billion daily portions? How many can I scoop into my life? Because there does come another time in the next season. The promised land is nice. You step in, and it's like, hey, there's already, there's already vineyards here. That's actually the word they use, right? There's already vineyards here. We didn't even have to plant our own farms, and we have homes, and we don't have to live in tents anymore. And we can, like, actually accumulate resources, and we can do that normal life thing again. And that's great, and it's good, and it's beautiful. But what you don't get in the promised land is manna anymore. You don't get the same thing, and that's not to say Jesus isn't faithful and doesn't keep giving daily portions and whatever, but there is something unique about the way it works here. I want to make the most of that, friends. I'm kind of jealous for that. If I'm going to live through the wilderness either way, I want to get every bit of what's on the table today. I want so many Tim Tams. <laughs> and I believe that you probably want so many Tim Tams too. Let's stand and pray. Thanks, friends.